Welcome to the Vertiguys podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are doing Preacher, One Man's War. This was a one-shot special that came out in 1998. It was written by Garth Ennis with art by Peter Snayberg. Snayberg or Sneeberg? Sorry that we're mispronouncing that. Yeah, it can't can't be helped. Colors by Grant Golish. Now, this is the first time I think that we've seen Peter Snayberg on this particular book. But he was a regular of Vertigo Comics like Book of Magic and The Dreaming and the Starman series, which was not Vertigo, but was kind of a mature audience. Oh, yeah, okay. The Jack Knight Starman series. Yes. Yeah, so not the usual Preacher team. A rare Preacher issue not penciled by Steve Dillon. Yeah, although not that unusual for the specials. Yeah. That's basically been the way most of the specials have been. Garth Ennis wrote them, but somebody else drew them. We've got a cover here by Glenn Fabry, who is, of course, the usual Preacher cover artist. And it shows a detailed face of Hair Star... And in front of him, a gas mask special forces guy, who will also turn out to be him, holding a little girl? Or would you say that looks more like a pregnant woman? That is a little girl. Okay. Well, if it's a little girl, it makes sense with the story. But um, <laughs> It's not nice to pick on Glenn Fabry. I'm not trying to. I honestly wasn't sure. But, okay, little girl. And he has a vaguely, like, I mean, it's... It's all in, like, red and black. There's this mist coming up, and the the gas mask guy has a very kind of dystopian look to him. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, although we'll discover that he's not representative of any particularly menacing force that just happens to be his uniform. Well, I guess he's representative of Hair Star, who is a menacing force. Yeah, that's true. We open in 1972, and this is an Oscuro-looking star who is very unhappy. In the modern American idiom, I find out what time it is. Now, we actually open on Harris Star here in his white and red grail suit, just kind of looking stern at the camera. But we will immediately leave that milieu and find ourselves in Hamburg, 1972. Terrorists have taken over an airplane and are demanding the release of prisoners outside the suits who are tasked with dealing with the situation, including a government minister, are discussing how the whole thing is BS. Right, this guy Oberst is the special forces commander, and he does not believe the terrorists intend to give up any hostages, even if their demands are met. He's basically bullying the minister here into giving the order to attack, but the minister has been given the order to give the order. A military officer character uh, kind of 
as an aside, informs us that Oberst loves this stuff. He's kind of a cowboy. I guess so. yippee Now there's a guy who killed some Germans. Yeah, that's right. But this is a German guy who's going to kill some terrorists, so it's different. Right. He's a relatively cowboy, but they're all Germans. Right. So Roy Rogers stomps off to give the order to attack, and the minister says, Hmm, you know, this is a rather naive and inappropriate thought for a minister of state, but why can't people just be nice? So we get a couple of pages here of the special forces guys entering the plane, some good violence as they kill all of the terrorists. Right, tear gas bombs go off at the front and rear doors of the plane. These gas mask commandos surge in and just start gunning down the terrorists, yelling for the passengers to get down. Yeah, we do have one cool piece of art here where a guy is threatening to execute a hostage and he and his gun both get blown to pieces. After the shooting stops, a lieutenant is congratulated. First man in and you take out three of them. They offer him a beer, but it turns out he doesn't drink. Oberst enters, mentions that one of the passengers can't find her daughter. Says she crawled under a seat when the charges went off. She's here. Yeah, it turns out the little girl has been killed by a stray round. Oberst and the other special forces troops leave, counting this as an acceptable casualty. But the lieutenant pulls his helmet off to reveal Herr Star. This is not the way the world should be. Yeah, Oberst was saying that they had an allowance of 12 civilian casualties right this operation yeah so he says he's gonna have no problem sleeping tonight but this is a formative event in the life of hairstar as we will see later in a bar we find oberst answering a pock-faced man's questions about star we are told that he is tactically brilliant an expert marksman extremely intelligent totally professional and about as lively and fun as a dead fish the other guy brendel asks if star is driven Oberst says he isn't sure. Star keeps to himself. But he starts to tell a story from Star's training. You know that big sergeant they've got teaching unarmed combat? Newman? Yes, he's a thug. I don't like him. Well, anyway, Newman has Star's group for the week. And sure enough, he kicks seven shades of shit out of them. Puts two in the hospital. Fucking sadist, really. So eventually it's Star's turn, and Newman steps up to him with this big shit-eating grin and goes, Come on, then, Baldy. Show me what you've got. Oberst concludes... And Star pulls out a 9mm and shoots him through both legs. Yeah, it turns out the top brass were impressed with his initiative. Sort of like letting Kirk cheat in the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> Brendel asks essentially, then how did he learn unarmed combat? I have no intention of being unarmed. Yeah, and this is consistent with what we've seen of Hair Star. We've seen him fight unarmed, and yeah, he probably didn't finish his training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlike Jesse. Oberst opines that he's not looking for by-the-book types. You want a fellow with a bit of oomph. He concludes, Star is a smart boy. He'll go far. 1974, Star is teaching an anti-terrorism class. Yeah, and he's training the group to shoot the women first. Women terrorists, he said, have to be better to go far in their organizations, so they're probably the most dangerous people in the room. Incidentally, there was a mention during the plane incident that Star had killed a female terrorist. So, Brendel comes in, and the two of them get to having a discussion. We learn that Star has been pushing for a police force trained up to military standards, but this being Germany, no one wants it. It brings back uncomfortable memories for our country. Meanwhile, society continues on its merry way to hell, and here, as in every other country in the world, no one will lift a finger to stop it. Not a Democrat, then? Democracy is for ancient Greeks. 
So Star informs Brendel that he joined the German special forces in a quest for order. Right, but he says he can only take pot shots at chaos and be congratulated when the results aren't too appalling. He reminds Brendel of the girl from the Hamburg job. Perfect example. Dead at six. She could have been strong, healthy, productive. Forces beyond her or anyone's control put a stop to that in an instant. And we were meant to celebrate because it could have been worse. That's just making excuses, Brendel. That's not good enough. How interested would you be in an alternative? To our system? To everything. At this point, I must ask you a question. Are you a Christian? How important is it that I should be? Utterly. I am a committed Christian. Yeah, the first time I read that, I came away with the conclusion that, yes, in addition to everything else, Star is a committed Christian. On rereading, it occurred to me that, yeah, maybe he's just telling Brendel what he wants to hear. It seems kind of obvious in this context. Yeah, it seems like Brendel set him up to, like, you're, you're going to have to say that you are for this to continue. Right, right. But at the same time, Brendel, obviously, I mean, they have this whole conversation later about faith, which, you know, getting a little ahead of ourselves. But it turns out that the rift that does develop between the two of them is that Brendel actually is a committed Christian. Right, not yeah. Just, not just saying the words. Brendel says he'd like to introduce Star to some people who are already interested in him. Star says there's something else Brendel can help him with. Women. Yeah, we cut to a scene of Star on a date... I don't really want to go into a ton of detail here. The girl is talking about how she's not very adventurous and she wants to settle down. Star says that there's been a misunderstanding and he's only interested in fucking. Right. I mean, this scene certainly sets up Star as somewhat of an unpleasant character. Was there a, another level on which it bothered you? Well, I think it bothers me because at the top of the comic book, he's described as... What's the line? Utterly professional, but not very lively and interesting. Right. He is neither utterly professional nor not very lively. He, <laughs> he, okay. He is lively in very unpleasant ways. He seems to have a lot of trouble uh, maintaining professionalism. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah, and that's something that we're going to see again in this issue. Later on, Star is talking with Brendel. We learn that Star still wants to have sex, though he doesn't like the idea. Yeah, he definitely doesn't like the idea of romance or seduction, which is, as we'll find out, how he develops his lifelong taste for prostitutes. Right, but he describes the sexual urge as something that he's he's frustrated he's unable to completely resist. They also talk about the organization that Brendel is planning to introduce him to. The reason he hasn't heard back yet is that they're investigating his past. That shouldn't take too long, then. It was somewhat less than epic. A little later, we find Star with a prostitute. He says he doesn't like the momentary loss of control that comes with sex, but he'd feel more comfortable if he could put the act in context, essentially by making it more degrading for the woman. Yeah, and he says, How much does it cost to piss in your mouth? Which is kind of gross, and I've said this about Star before, but I think, it's, I think this is supposed to make him come off as a badass, but to me, he just seems petulant. Okay, yeah. Well, another meeting with Brendel. Brendel says in six months, Star gets his entrance. I, I want to point out here that, presumably coming from the prostitute, he opens his conversation with Brendel by saying, I feel great! That's a rare moment of him being chipper. I think there are a couple of these rare moments of him being chipper spread throughout the series, and they're always after sex. Yeah, always after sex with prostitutes. 
particularly sordid sex is the way that he described it in his first appearance. Right. I think the other one that comes to mind is when he discovered that he likes being fucked with a strap-on. Yeah, there was an exact mirror to this scene during the Masada arc. Right, okay. Anyway, Star says, I'm in. And Brendel says, you've been in from the beginning. You are committed the second I raise the question whether you like it or not. Essentially, either Star will impress Brendel's bosses, or he'll be killed. Welcome to the Grail, Hair Star. So, it is now 1975. I am given the weapon with which to fight, Star narrates. Brendel's in a Grail suit, Star's in a regular suit, and they're meeting this old man who begins to explain the plan of Armageddon. My first read was that this was the Allfather, but there's never any indication that the office of Allfather changes hands at any point. Plus, it wouldn't really make sense for the Allfather to meet a new recruit like this. Yeah, we find out later, like, he's never met Dieranique until he does. So, given the gravity of that moment, we have to assume he's also never met anyone who holds the same office as Dieranique. Yeah, that's a fair call. So this guy's middle management. Right. In any case, he begins to explain how the world ends. January 1st, 2000, an American nuke goes off over Baghdad. By January 3rd, a coalition of Muslim states destroy Israel. Wars and ethnic violence break out all over the world. Moscow is destroyed by an unexplained nuclear blast. On January 16th, all the nukes are fired. The warheads, he begins, fail to detonate. You don't want the kingdom of heaven. You want to inherit the earth. So Star guesses correctly that they're planning on bringing down the world's governments and institutions to replace them with an alternative of their own. The mass failure of the warheads, he says, is miraculous, but how will they sustain a state of belief? I told you, Christ is coming. Christ is with us. He lives in our house. In time, you will meet him. We have protected his lineage since the crucifixion. We are the grail that holds his sacred blood. The middle management says, man cannot rule man. They intend to rule through the king of kings. Right. So they're definitely counting on a literal messiah to work at least some of his own miracles. Albeit a messiah they can control. Right. In the car, Brendel says Star is being given a test. He's wanted for a Samson unit, which is essentially grail wetworks. Yeah, there's a Spanish Grail official who had flipped and given a bunch of Grail material to journalists. They want to tie up the loose end while at the same time guaranteeing that no one ever takes his claims particularly seriously, so it has to look natural. Right, Star suggests immediately killing the journalists, but he's told they might have given something to their friends and they might be taken seriously if they disappeared. Right, there's no way to know how far the rumor has spread of the Grail's existence. So instead of just trying to kill everybody who might know it, they have to discredit it. Or it's sort of already discredited, but they have to tie up loose ends in a way that doesn't cause anybody to take it any more seriously than they were predisposed to. Yeah, already discredited in the sense that this official, Paul Shearer, is currently in a mental institution. Starr points out that since his recruitment requires a murder, he's essentially being made complicit in the Grail scheme unable to leave. But he's pretty much fine with that. He knew this was the moment where they either like him or tip the order to shoot him in the head. Oh, you needn't worry about that, Hairstar. I wasn't. On the next page, we find out Star's solution to the problem. Yeah, we go back to this middle management official. We did not expect you to blow up the lunatic asylum. With 205 inmates and staff dead in the explosion, nobody has any reason to suspect that Paul Shearer was the target. Right. There are several psychopaths and killers incarcerated there, so there are plenty of people who 
there's a much more obvious motive to kill. And the loss of innocent life? How many children died at Sodom and Gomorrah? The man puts his cane against Hairstar's neck. You're in. Is he, like, tapping him on each shoulder doing a knighting thing here? I sort of thought that he was, like, doing it in a vaguely threatening way. Like, he wants to make him nervous, so he puts this stick against his jugular. Mm, okay. And then says, you're in. But, you know, you can read it your way. I guess, you see the little lines by the cane in the last panel on page 36? Mm-hmm. I guess that does suggest a sort of movement like what you're describing. I guess he could be wagging it at him in a scolding kind of way. It could be. We now get, well, not our first look at Masada, but Hair Star's first look at Masada. 1980. For the first time, I understand my war in its entirety. And he meets Marseille for the first time. Oh, yeah. So this guy was a supporting character in the Masada arc. He's one of the highest-ranked Grail soldiers at Masada and eventually becomes a member of Star's personal conspiracy. And Brendel is about to show Hairstar their greatest treasure. Which is to say, the bloodline of Christ. They have here two descendants of Christ, a brother and a sister, who they expect to give birth to the child who will be the Messiah in 2000. Now... We see what they've got here is a really tall cage with basically a thatched-roofed hut in it. And the two descendants of Christ are running around naked in the cage, and one of them uh, chucks his own feces at Star. Actually, I think he chucks his sister's feces at Star. Okay, fair enough. I had trouble identifying the source, the provenance of the feces. Oh, no, I'm wrong. I thought it read, she's shitting in his hand, but it actually says he's shitting in his hand. Okay, no, the provenance of the feces is not there. <laughs> the provenance of the feces. It's is not controversial. Clear. I just misread it. <laughs> okay. Well, in any event, this really isn't cool. I mean, mentally disabled people can have a lot more dignity than this. And frankly, when we met the child back in the Masada arc, he wasn't nearly as disabled as these people seem to be. Yeah. I mean, there's tasteless and then there's punching down. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do think that Garth Ennis has a sort of perverse fascination with inbreeding resulting in developmentally disabled people. The idea of that, we see it again with Jesse's friends from his hometown. Right, Billy Bob and his family. Right. Yeah, who we were unambiguously told are, you know, good, decent people. Unlike Jesse's family, which had no physical disability and, and a storied lineage, but... Right, they cared a lot about, about maintaining the bloodline, but they didn't do it through inbreeding. Right. But they were rotten on the inside. They were monsters. Right. Morally. Anyway, so we get a little bit more about Brendel and Hairstar's, the division between them on the issue of faith. Hairstar has absolutely no faith that the offspring that these two produce will be a suitable messiah, whereas Brendel is completely unconcerned. Have faith, Hairstar. We get another pretty gross scene of Hairstar with a prostitute. The only thing that's really interesting about it is that he is distracted and comes to the realization that he has to sever the bloodline. So this is where he makes his plan that he has to kill the child. On the topic of these scenes, I think maybe they're not purely for the sake of bad taste. And this is definitely playing with the trope, the almost subconscious convention that with worldly power and with willingness to use violence comes virility. Star has power and he's always had will, but virility will always elude him. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point about him. We talked before as well about how he's compared negatively to Jesse and Tulip, who have both a egalitarian and loving relationship and a much better sex life. <laughs> right. 1982. I meet the most powerful man in the world, and I know immediately that I must one day kill him. Ah, cake. This is Star's first introduction to All Father to Aranique, as Star has just been raised to the level of Sacred Executioner. He says that Star has a perfect record, but that's not what he was chosen for. He was chosen because of a star for Star. At some point we should mention here, in case you missed the Masada story arc, that All-Fathered Aranique is an enormously fat man who is usually eating. Yeah, also in case you've missed some of our prior material on the subject, Hair Star has one eye put out, and it's surrounded by a pattern of star-like lines. Yes, and the way that Star began this scene, it may be worth mentioning that by the time we get to this point in the story, Star has in fact killed Derenique. Right, we already know. So, as Derenique explains over the next couple of pages, when Star was a child, bullies held him down and with a piece of glass cut five lines radiating out from his right eye, also putting the eye out. He screamed so hard we learn that his voice remains a grating scratch. The trauma caused all his hair to fall out. He was five. Yeah, but he never told on the other kids, never named names. Instead, he just killed them all by the time he was ten. All of them at least one year apart, all of them in ways that looked like accidents. Patience, resolve, skill, steal. Congratulations on your appointment, O Sacred Executioner Star. Yeah, I also like here, during his talk about the bullying incident, Dierenique uses the metaphor of children having the jungle in them. And he sort of appeals to Star's longing for order. Right, yes. A day will come when chaos touches no more lives. Once the king is returned, the jungle will die. The masses will bow to order, eyes and minds flooded with the glory of a living messiah. Those that resist are yours, O Star. He sends Star out, but asks on his way out to send someone in with a bucket. I would vomit. And hard cut to star vomiting. Patience, resolve, skill, and hate, all father. And hate. So he does not like having his past dredged up in this way. And he has a strong dislike for Derenique from the very beginning of their relationship. Yeah, that's right. I think that he also holds in contempt Derenique's obvious indulgence in temporal pleasures. Which is somewhat hypocritical, as he has an issue with that himself. <laughs> right, he has a different vice, but no less excessive. In 1983, Star goes to a fancy party with Brendel. Yeah, they basically want to make an impression on all these heads of state and people deeply embedded in governments and stuff. You know, if they get out of line, this is the guy who's going to kill them. Right, to remind them all who put them in power and who can take them out. We see once again why Hairstar has been hailed as a consummate professional. <laughs> Prime Minister, how much does it cost to piss in your mouth? No, seriously. Right, he just wanders around from head of state to head of state saying the most awfully rude things that he can think of. He has... No impulse control. <laughs> that's a way of putting it, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's right. He has total disrespect for politicians and the democratic process... Although it may bear mentioning that 
in this verse, the democratic process is a joke, as the Grail actually chooses all of the leaders. But, yeah, Stark has never been willing to show respect for anyone, and he's just raised himself to a level of power where now he doesn't have to. I just want to point out that the uh, how much to piss in your mouth line was not that great to begin with, and that's the one that gets a call back <laughs> later on in the issue. Well, I mean, it tells us exactly what he thinks of politicians. He uses that line with prostitutes, and now he's using it with the prime minister. Fair enough. Amazing, the company one finds oneself in sometimes, he says to Brendel in a moment of quiet. I don't think so, Hair Star. I always knew you'd go far. That is also a callback earlier in the issue. People were discussing how he would go far. Right. So, so it's now 1984. And the Messiah is born. Unfortunately for him, his mother died in childbirth. His father killed himself when they took the mother away. So he's the last scion of the blood of Christ left. Tragedy, tragedy, but blessed are we, says Dieronique. Dieronique shares his plans with Star. He wants the next decade to be a time of hope, which will make the fall even more devastating. I want the Berlin Wall gone by 92 at the latest. To teach misery is a delicate art, O oh Star. That's a good line. And that brings us pretty much to the crux of the whole issue. In 1990, in a car with Brendel, Star declares war on Aronique. No, I mean, why? Why do it at all? Insurance. I am fighting a war. I've known you from the beginning, but... Exactly. You've seen what's wrong. Or rather, you've seen that I've seen what's wrong. That's what I mean about insurance. His voice is hard to do for a long time. Right. <laughs> the greatest, most potent conspiracy ever to exist. A genuine chance to save the world. The Grail would waste it on a monkey. Herr Star, you blaspheme against the Son of God. You can't judge the child by his appearance. In Jesus' name, you can't presume to judge him at all. Brendel is horrified as his faith in the bloodline of Christ and in this Messiah is true. Yeah, it's absolute. Right, whereas Star was always considering him as a tool, and he now considers him an ineffectual tool. So Star lays out his plan. He's going to kill Dieronique and the child. This actually happens later slash earlier. Some of it somewhat by accident, but yeah, this did all happen in the Masada arc. He says he'll find a more credible messiah to replace the child. Most of the Grail won't even know, as they haven't actually seen the messiah. Have you forgotten that little girl? What? On the plane, Hamburg. I watched you that night, gazing at her shattered face. That's why I invited you to join the Grail. I thought you'd want to build a world where little girls would never have to die again. Then we were seeing different things that night. I was looking at the face of chaos, a reminder that the world lacks order, that uncertainty can reach out and smash us at any time. So long as that continues to be true, fixating on a single death is pointless. I am at war. I have been all my life. And I would kill a million little girls to win. So we should talk about that, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, there's a few ways to read it. My read is... I can't abide circumstances where I can be destroyed at any time by forces beyond my control, particularly when taken in light of a star for star. Star doesn't have compassion. He has fear. He's not fighting for that little girl. He's fighting never to be at the world's mercy again. He's reshaping the world, but he's doing it to protect himself. I don't know if I would go quite that far with it. I mean, that's certainly a plausible read, but... I think what it is is that he has a disgust for chaos, for what it costs him, and as well as for what it costs other people. Okay. He really does want to save the world, you know, by taking it over, by ruling it, essentially. But 
he doesn't care that much about the collateral damage that happens along the way. So for you, the spiel isn't so much that he isn't fighting for other people. He isn't fighting for that little girl so much as that he is willing to accept just an enormous cost. It's like the Joker says. It doesn't bother him as long as things go according to plan. <laughs> even if the plan is horrifying. Right, okay, yeah. So, Brendel here says that all this time he thought they were friends. Star says, don't get sentimental, Brendel, while pulling his gun. And it is strongly implied at this point that he executes Brendel. Right. For not wanting to join his little scheme. Yeah, and there's a moment here where Brendel seems to be perfectly aware that that's what has to happen. And although he's terribly distraught over it, he isn't trying to stop it either. And now we get Dieronique in a tiny bathing suit. <laughs> this is 1993. There's not really a lot to discuss about this scene besides it shows, you know, that Dieronique is corpulent and gross and has no self-control. It shows that the messiah or the would-be messiah is quite developmentally disabled and it shows Hare Star requesting to move the child to Masada for safekeeping, which is clearly a bit of maneuvering on his part. Right. What happens here is that Deronique has moved the child to his personal retreat at La Sainte-Marie, a great inconvenience to Star's plans. Now, we can kind of guess at Deronique's motive here. What we saw in the Masada arc was that he appeared to be oblivious to Star's plans for considerably longer uh, than he actually was, and was setting up Star for a fall. So we might take away from this scene that as early as 1993, Deronique knew that Star was a threat and was consolidating the child under his wing for that reason. 1994. A surprise late development. At Masada, Star has captured a fallen angel, which we know to be the father of Genesis, the angelic demonic creature that's possessing Jesse Custer, the main character of the regular Preacher comic. Yeah, and the people he's surrounding himself with don't know that the All-Father doesn't know. He claims to have told him personally. Right. Now, Star plans to make full use of this card. He says, Can it feel pain, do you think? And he kicks the angel in the balls. Upon learning that it can, in fact, be hurt, he has it tortured for information, and he's delighted by what he learns. So, the Almighty has quit, the devil's dead, and heaven's a fucking shambles. That's excellent. God exists, and he's irrelevant. Once again, we find Star with a prostitute. This time, he's uncharacteristically chipper. He doesn't have a need for any pee, and he lets her be on top. She asks if she should say degrading things about herself in bed. Only if you feel like it. Yeah, like Ice Cube, he has had a good day. <laughs> and he's, for once, able to have sex without it being an especially degrading experience. Without that context, because he's having a good day, because things are going well for him in his life. Less sordid than usual. Right. His struggle to find his virility through his work is certainly reaching a middle. <laughs> so, 1995, he says that his power is at its zenith. The Grail is in control of, you know, almost every government and intelligence agency in the world. He is almost completely in control of the Grail, and he's fully in control of the conspiracy within the Grail. 
Right, he's subject to no orders except those of Derenique, and is confident that he has the ability to destroy Derenique and replace him. I have an enormous penis. I pay women to tell me so. His only problem is that he has no messiah. Son of God wanted, must be clean, presentable, and easily manipulated. Ability to work miracles and advantage. Then he looks into Derenique's surveillance order on Jesse Custer, which is mysteriously still in effect. Now, six months ago, Jesse obtained the power of Genesis and, at that moment, accidentally detonated his church with all of his congregation in it. Those who hear his voice are compelled to obey him. He speaks with the voice of God. And that brings us around to the final panel of the comic, which is the first panel again, except this time, Star is smiling. Yeah, and it's also a full-page spread. 1996. Tomorrow belongs to me. Now, Star's last line is an obvious reference to a song from the musical Cabaret. In the show, it begins as a gently patriotic anthem, but transforms over its length into essentially a Nazi march. In Bob Fosse's film version of the musical, the young man begins singing, and then this camera does a slow pan until we can see the swastikas on his uniform. Yikes. Yeah, so there's an obvious fascist undertone to Star's choice of words here. Right, and his hyper-obsession with maintaining order at all costs. You know, the idea that democracy is for ancient Greeks, people can't rule themselves. Right, he's the only one he trusts to do it. Yeah. So, what did you think of this issue? I think I had mentioned before that I found it a fun read that didn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but on the second go-around, I think that it did delve into Star's psychology a little more. Um, Sometimes in ways that are... (laughs) Fairly gratuitous, but that scene with Brendel in the car really gives us the opportunity to get to know Star on his own terms, why he believes he does the things he does. Yeah, I sort of have basically the same feelings about it. Big parts of it are extraneous, but it also, maybe more clearly and more thoroughly than any other issue of this series, tells us what's driving Hair Star. You know, what his true motivations are. Right. There's a lot in here about how he established his conspiracy, and we we basically knew that from seeing the endpoint of it in the Masada arc. We also have seen quite a bit of his vices before. But this sort of compiles his story and lets us see it from his perspective. We get another scene of Hairstar firing a handgun in an enclosed car. Another one? (laughs) Yeah, he kills Brendel. (laughs) That's right. How many times has he done that now? Is that three? Well, this is the third. <laughs> that guy and one of them th- was his first scene. He must go through a lot of earplugs. <laughs> yeah. If he had earplugs, he maybe could have saved a few car radios that way, since that's what he used the gun for one of those times. <laughs> right, right. So how do you stack this one up against the other preacher specials? I think that it's a lot better structured. It seems a lot more deliberate and less sloppy than the Saint of Killers miniseries. Okay, yeah. It's still not as much fun as the Cassidy special. Right. And I'm not sure that it's even as good at the character building work as the Cassidy special is. But I mean, that's the main virtue of this comic, obviously, is that it's it's a good character study of Hairstar. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The Cassidy special, as we talked about, it does reveal a lot about the way that he approaches situations, the way that he lives his immortal life. 
but it is also just kind of an adventure that he happened to have. And the same is true, I think, of the good old boys special that we'll come to in a little while. Whereas this is most definitely Star's origin story. Yeah, and the Cassidy special was telling its own story. This is really just a recap of things that we already kind of had been told. There's not really a story to this. It's just a lot of filling in blanks. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I think that's somewhat true. What did you think of the art on this book? It was fine. Not particularly distinctive, but effective. Oftentimes quite moody. Yeah, that's a good word for it. There's definitely a lot more use of darkness and shadow than in the regular Preacher book. Yeah, it kind of looks like something that Kelly Jones would draw a lot of the time. Which, again, that makes sense, because by the time the artist did this issue, he had a ton of experience on Sandman spinoffs. Yeah, that's a good point. I think sometimes he's mimicking Steve Dillon's style a little bit. And he's, you know, he's perfectly passable at that, but he's not quite Steve Dillon. Mm -hmm. You know, especially in the scenes of, like, comedy, or quote-unquote comedy. Yeah, well, there's not a lot that lightens the mood in this issue, and what there is is, not to keep hammering on that point again, but pretty tasteless. Yeah, it's a lot of really dark, cynical humor. Dark, cynical, and in bad taste. Yeah, I will call out some very expressive faces, particularly in the scene his uh, climactic sort of confrontation with Brendel as they both sort of realize that their goals and their beliefs are incompatible, irreconcilable. Yeah, and I will point out that the art in the action scene at the beginning where they're storming the airplane is really good. Mm, Yeah, so he's dynamic. The artist does a great job with that one. Yeah, it's dynamic, and also the special forces guys look just terrifying. You know, with their somewhat dystopian gas masks. I think sort of remind me of Genro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or is that a Wolfenstein thing? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm struggling to remember what they're called, but the elite troops in Wolfenstein usually wear. I'm not sure if it's Wolfenstein. I think they say Wolfenstein in the games. Seems like it probably ought to be Wolfenstein, but okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you're going to take that ridiculous name at face value. Anyway, I think they do wear all black outfits with gas masks, yeah. Right. Well, in our next Preacher episode, we'll have plenty of 4th of July fireworks as Jesse faces off with the Shatterer of Worlds. But first, join us in one week. We will have Ryan and Joanna from What's Lightsaber's Precious with us as we cover a couple of random Sandman issues. You could call it a convergence. You could indeed. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com. In this particular context, Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertiguise. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. If you send us an email to vertiguise at gmail.com with a listener question, we'd be happy to answer that on the air. We also try to give shout-outs to people who leave us positive reviews on iTunes. So yeah, if you leave a positive review, we'll give you a shout-out on the air, and it'll help spread the word about Vertiguys. We'd certainly love it if you do that, but as always, thanks so much just for listening. Thanks, everybody.
helicopter looking for a murder Two in the morning, got the fat burger Even saw the lights of the Goodyear blimp And it went ice cubes up Hell, but no throwing up Halfway home and my page is still blowing up Today I didn't even have to use my AK I gotta say it was a good day I like those the two British guys who were doing the Fantastic Four They seemed alright but... I just don't care about the Fantastic Four <laughs> <laughs> Is the problem there Like the Fantastic Four is always... It's always that consequence-free storytelling. You know, that is the genre of the Fantastic Four. We're in another timeline. We're in another dimension. This isn't going to matter again. So it's all Star Trek Voyager is your issue. Right. Okay. It's always cosmic. Yeah. You know how you can tell it's cosmic? How's that? Because they have a spaceship that they call a car. It's not a spaceship. It's a flying car. Well... Man, I hate the Fantastic Car, and you know why? You've probably told everybody this before, but you know what bothers me about the Fantastic Car? What? Okay, you got Reed in the front, you got Sue in the back, you got two wings that come off the sides. On the two wings are Ben Grimm, who weighs 800 pounds, and Johnny Storm, who doesn't even sit in the car, he just flies away. I don't know how the Fantastic Car doesn't spin ever. It's in, the like, whole a, time. It's in like a permanent spin. <laughs> yeah. Just spin yeah. Like it will just crash immediately. I don't know. You should put Ben in the center back, where he stabilizes the vehicle. It's probably run by whatever the the Reed Richards equivalent of an arc reactor is. You know, some, like, tiny little thing that you can adjust to some tiny little percentage, and it vastly changes the amount of power. Right. So Reed has just, like, modulated it or whatever so that the, so that the left wing has, has way more juice than the right. It just makes me physically uncomfortable to look at that thing. This well, listen, Ben Grimm is used to that. He's been he's had to deal with that oh! <laughs> for decades now. Right, yeah. 